Patient No Longer is a podcast featuring leaders in healthcare who are inspiring a positive shift in the customer experience and human understanding. In this podcast, we interview people who are from all areas of healthcare that are impacting the healthcare consumer journey of care. My name is Ryan Donahue, solutions expert and strategic advisor with NRC Health. And it's a pleasure to host Patient No Longer, a podcast in search of what's new, what's next, and what makes healthcare human again. And we're back with another episode of the Patient No Longer podcast. Very excited for today's guest. He is a returning guest. In fact, I think he's made the most appearances in our short-lived podcast just under a year. I think this is going to be his third appearance. We're going to be welcoming Chris Bevelo, who is Chief Brand Officer at Revive. Hello, Chris. Hello, Ryan. Do I get a free robe or something like on Saturday Night Live when you're back for the third time? I think I need a bathrobe. I expect a patient no longer bathrobe. Well, in the spirit of healthcare, we have a magnet and we have a pen and we will be shipping those to you momentarily. And we should be providing you a gift because Chris has provided me a gift. He has actually sent me a copy of his recently published book, Joe Public 2030 part of the Joe Public series, the fourth and supposedly final installment of the Joe Public series. And this book is being talked about a lot. And let's just dig right in, Chris, because as you know, you have basically found five trends, five things that are going to happen between now and 2030. And I love the lens in which you look through this book. This is a time right now in the spring of 2022 where we're saying, what is going to happen next? And what does the future hold in general? but also what does the future hold for healthcare? And so I want to dig right in because you start with a topic that is near and dear to me, and that is the consumer of healthcare. We've talked about consumerism a lot over the last decade, but you talk about the Copernican consumer who believes that they are the center of their own health universe. Love that you talked about Copernicus. He doesn't get mentioned enough in the business world. You've got a reason for that. Right. You've got this consumer who believes they're at the center. I remember 10 years ago doing a focus group on branding. Somebody in Colorado said, you know, as a patient, I should really be the sun in the solar system of care. All care should be coordinated around me. And I felt like I was Pluto. And so you could feel the mic drop on the other end of that survey comment. They're not even a planet anymore. So that just tells you how bad it's gotten. Right. They don't even have any status at all. We've had lots of conversations about the plight of the consumer and do they get any recognition? Do they really hold any value? Does what they say matter? But you do have a consumer who in the last two years has seen a lot of things come their way, not just in healthcare, but also if we pick on our industry, telemedicine. There are some doctors who've gone on and had virtual visits when they always swore they'd never do them. You've had consumers that have received care, had scripts filled, had real care delivery, if you will, not leaving their couch and staying home. And that was something that really wasn't achieved on a mass scale until we had a global pandemic. But now you've got consumers who had positive experiences like that of healthcare coming to them. Tell me more about this trend and prediction and really what you think is going to happen with this consumer in the near future. Of the five, Ryan, this is probably the least out there, the least fresh or different way to think about it. It's not something new to talk about healthcare consumer continually finding themselves at the center of the health universe. And that entails everything from, like you mentioned, care being delivered virtually to them, 
We're seeing a renaissance in things like house calls and in in in-home health. And we've got systems like Intermountain and Geisinger who are trying to advance things like virtual hospitals. So we're seeing more and more of that from the kind of legacy provider sector. But then you combine that with all of the different other ways in which access to data and that data being leveraged in terms of the consumer would be centralized thanks to blockchain, thanks to advances in AI and other software-driven solutions. Digital therapeutics is an example of that, where not only will the care you receive be centered around you and brought to you wherever possible, right? You're still going to have knee surgery in a facility. Unlikely you're going to have it in your home anytime soon. That stuff is few and far between, as we know, right? The rest of it can really be brought to you, as can the management of your health. And that's where data combined with those technologies that I mentioned could really change things moving forward. Well, and let's think about that. And this rolls right into your second prediction and really trend that you've identified. But there might be a dark side to having everything come to you and everything seemingly being presented in a really convenient way. Here's healthcare. It's changed. It comes to you now instead of you wandering the wilderness and trying to find healthcare and piece it all together yourselves. It's no longer in that way, you know, the traditional healthcare delivery will come to you. But in that process, you talk about your second trend is constricted consumerism. And this idea that consumer choice might become a little bit of a fallacy because of narrow networks. There's lots of trends that you outlined that I'll let you expand on. But my question on that is, are consumers going to feel like now, you know, it's just like, I'm just ready to open a gift for Christmas and out comes a broken toy. Am I going to feel like now I've got choices being taken away? I'm being told this is my network. Here you go. You wanted healthcare delivered your way. Here it is. Is that what you see? Yeah, it's interesting because we didn't pick these five predictions as a holistic depiction of 2030. They're not five puzzle pieces that are meant to kind of fit together as a whole, though we do believe all five of them can come true in the way we predicted. So that may seem weird. We just talked about the Copernican consumer at the center of their own health universe. And then the second prediction is their choices are going to be constricted. And then when we talk about the third one and we talk about the tsunami of choices that are entering the market at a certain level, like, wait a second, how can there be more choice when I can have primary care at Walmart, Walgreens, Apple, Amazon, Dollar General, like you name it. (laughs) So the constricted consumerism is really more about that higher acuity hospital-based care, right? So certainly folks have more and more choices now than they ever did before. But in terms of hospital care, those choices are going to be more and more limited, primarily because of the payers, but not just payers, consolidation in the provider market limits choice. And also, consumers themselves have never been equipped to wield the sword and shield of consumerism to their benefit, as has always been espoused. There's a great quote in the book from Wendell Potter. If you don't know Wendell Potter, I won't even tell you is you got to go look him up. He's amazing. He's got a great book called Deadly Spin. And he's like, look, we've been talking about this for 20 years. It ain't going to happen. And I think to that degree, he's right as a policy or as an organic kind of outcome of change in the industry, consumerism is not delivered on its promises, and it's not going to, in fact, it's probably going to get worse in that regard, in the regard of 
where the money really is down. Like it's one thing to say, I got lots of choice for my blue shot. It's either free or 10 bucks, but I'm not going to have a lot of choice for my $30,000 knee surgery. Yeah. And that's a huge issue to consumers because I think they've, I won't say been sold a bill of goods, but they've picked up on this energy of, you know, healthcare is coming to me. And finally I can assert myself after feeling for decades, I've had no choice. In fact, I just want to take that a step further before we get to the next trend. If we could, you know, this idea that consumerism has not delivered, we've talked about it for a long time. We've talked about the promise of consumerism, but one thing that you and I tend not to do is put up this idea of the empowered consumer. I have noticed that more and more the last five to seven years of organizations, whether they're healthcare systems or insurance plans saying, you know, really there's this empowered consumer that's going to manage their own care, which to me was always covered for, we've shifted a, a ton of financial risk with a high deductible health plan to consumers and families who don't have near the resources or knowledge that, for example, a health insurance plan has to navigate, know what they pay, so on and so forth. What do you think of that, knowing those two trends tie together? Do you believe that there's an empowered consumer in there somewhere? Do you think that that's an excuse that the industry's created to say, hey, sorry, you didn't fix it. So I guess no one did. We're tied and we're stuck in the healthcare system we have. Where do you net out on that? Wendell Potter, I think, said this first, but I say it all the time. Consumer-driven healthcare, that's the name for high deductible plans, which was labeled by who? The health insurance companies. And they labeled it consumer-driven health. Like, no consumer saying, you know what I want to do? I want to spend more money out of my pocket. That's what I want to do. It's the most ridiculous euphemism Think about any other industry where they would try to pull the wool over your eyes by saying, hey, guess what? You get to participate in a consumer-driven plan. That means you have to spend $5,000 of your own money before you get any coverage. Like, what? How is that consumer-driven? In the book, there's a number of people that just like nail this. And they say, look, consumerism has always pinned this empowerment to the consumer. But that assumes the consumer is the one with the power because they're the ones spending the money. But even with what we just talked about, the biggest spenders in healthcare are not consumers. They're not individuals. They're payers. They're employers and they're public and private payers. So if the people with the power are the ones spending the money, that explains why the industry is the way it is. It's not shaped for the benefit of the individual. It's shaped for the benefit of those spending the money, which explains things like a PBM, which no consumer focus group is going to get in a room and say, you know what we need? Some black box thing that nobody can describe that help us spend more money on our drugs. Like, what is that? Yet that is a huge part of our system. And, you know, politicians have thrown that out, Ryan, forever that, hey, the way to solve healthcare is to empower the consumer. It just misses all the points about this industry. And we could go on and on about the financial side of it, too. There's a change in the tax laws and how they've been interpreted where we're going to start seeing a move from employer covered health benefits, you know, that you're not going to have employer plans anymore. They're just going to give you a sack of money and you're going, going to go out on the exchange. And it's very, very similar, eerily similar to what happened with pensions and 401ks, which were sold as, hey, guess what? You get the freedom to invest in your retirement instead of us just giving you money. And, and where do we sit in terms of retirement savings in this country? Employee-driven retirement? Is that sort of the way that we That's sold right. Consumer-driven retirement. We're no longer we just going to 
give you retirement. We're going to cover 3% of whatever you put into it. There's a lot of similar aspects. Let's flip to the other side here. Your third prediction talks about the funnel wars. And really what I got out of this is it's sort of the splitting, the fracturing of the healthcare system as we know. We like to talk about the industry as one homogenous piece, but you talk about the fact that there could be models that break up. There could be some systems that are comprehensive health organizations, which I think a lot of hospital systems want to be and talk about. But then you talk about how there's some that might be left as just acute care destinations. And the words you use are the giant ICU on the hill. And I think what you've done there is you've tapped into the fear of a lot of executives and leaders who work in traditional healthcare who say, gosh, I really don't want to end up as the giant ICU on the hill. Talk to me more about that trend, that idea, and maybe even a little bit on what it's going to take to not have that fracture occur. Yeah. So the giant ICU on the hill is attributed to a CEO of an academic medical center. I won't say who it is, but that was his fear in driving for broadening basically the, the value proposition of the continuum of care in his organization. He said, we don't want to end up that way. In the book, Somebody else says, using the same idea, that those systems that don't survive these funnel wars would become downstream vendors of care, which I think is even worse than a giant IC on a hill. Now, if you're a giant IC on a hill or you're a downstream vendor of care, you can still be a profitable, successful organization. This is not saying that hospitals will go away. There will always be need for hospitals. There will always be need for academic medical centers. But what it would say is, in those markets where these systems lose out and they shrink to a giant ICU on the hill or to a downstream vendor of care, they're going to be smaller by definition, and they're not going to have the full continuum of care. They will have lost the battle for the patient relationship at the top of the funnel, primary care, urgent care, virtual care, all the places people enter, because that's where all these other folks are targeting, Apple, Amazon, Walmart, and so on. And if you lose that relationship, you are now beholden. You're almost a B2B organization that's beholden on referrals from other brands. You will not be as concerned with building a consumer brand and opening all the top of the funnel access points you need. You will be restricted to working out with Optum, Walmart, CVS, and whoever else owns those relationships, which patients you're going to get for what. It's incredible to think about working with Walmart as their downstream vendor. And I would also think there wouldn't be much growth in being an ICU on the Hill. All the ICUs will be built and established. It'd be very difficult to grow that company, even if you can establish success in that little slice. The other way to think about that too, Ryan, is almost all the other sectors in healthcare, their mission is to, I mean, we heard this from the CEO of Walgreens recently, who said, our mission is to keep people out of the health system. That's what we want to do. Pharma, med tech, all of those sectors, their job is to help keep people out of the hospital. So you're right. Like you can, you know, survive and have a long life as an ICU on the hill, but it's going to be hard to grow. Very difficult. And nobody really wants to be relegated to that. Your next piece, your fourth out of five trends might be the scariest. You saved the worst for last on the last two, but. A fascinating read in particular, this idea of the division that we've seen in this country really manifesting itself in healthcare. 
which is generally speaking, stayed pretty unified in terms of if you need care, you go to some place that you believe in and get it. But you talk about these health sects that might come out of sort of the polarization, maybe the globalization mm-hmm. of healthcare. I don't want to believe in it. It's um, there. It's already it's, there, man. It's there, but let's talk about where it could go because you even throw out this terrifying harbinger of all essentially shorthanded as you know, red clinics and blue clinics. And I go to a doctor who's assigned, you know, the same political beliefs as me. And that's why I get care there. Do you really think that's going to happen? I'm surprised it hasn't already. You know, you set out, you do this research, you hear from these experts and you see what's going on. And you're like, wow, that's where this could go, right? Because it happens in all kinds of other areas. It happens in school. It happens in the car you drive. Why couldn't it happen here? And then you start saying, okay, could you really have an alternative provider of care, clinic, let's say, that goes against mainstream medical beliefs? You can pick what those are. In the book, we focus a lot because COVID's so fresh in our mind. Let's just say that you've got a clinic where, let's say it's a pediatric clinic that doesn't believe in any vaccines at all. That is against mainstream medical establishment. It just 100% is. There's always been people who haven't believed in vaccines, but they've been a very small minority. Because of COVID, that's grown a lot. So could you have 20 doctors in a clinic that treat kids without that? How could that happen, right? And you go, well, in Minnesota, right when we were putting this book to bed in the fall, there was a story about a pediatrician who was being reviewed by the state medical board because he did exactly what I just said. He was telling all of his families, don't get any vaccines for your kids. And the state medical board's like, okay, that's not cool. We're going to review his license. And so you go, okay, see, that can never happen, right? And then you look into some medical boards, county boards, state boards. Those are all political appointees in every case. So then you read about in Idaho, in the county which Boise sits, whichever group is responsible for naming people to the health board, they named a doctor to the health board of that county that did not believe COVID was real. Not about the vaccine, not about masking, not about the other ways we could argue. Didn't believe COVID was real. This is a doctor sitting on the health board. And so this is happening right now, right? That's why I mean, like, there are certain names in this country that I can't believe haven't already said, put my name on a clinic and watch the line wrap around the block. It's honestly a thing. And this isn't about the red versus the blue politically. It's really about what the heck are you going to do about that if you're a hospital health system? What are you going to do? Because you're already seeing and hearing stories about that. We hear that from our clients all the time of patients that rebel against a medical treatment they don't agree with. What happens when they can walk down the street to an alternative clinic? You're not Patagonia. You're not Fox News. You can't pick a red audience or blue audience to treat. You need to treat them all. How the heck do you promote vaccines? when whatever percentage of the population doesn't believe in vaccines. It's a real issue, and it's only going to get, unfortunately, we think, worse. That is very depressing. I'll try to pull us out of it a little bit. There is this idea, you already talked about the giant ICU on the hill, which is not necessarily the future that a lot of hospital health systems want to be. But I could also see in that situation, I know it's not just about red and blue, but if we just keep that analogy for simplicity's sake, I now have a red patient coming in or a blue patient coming in who's been told a set of things in the primary care delivery, and now there's a serious condition that's acute level and I've got to treat them. There's already enough issues trying to treat people with different preferences and different viewpoints 
and get them into a standardized version of care that still works for them personally, that would be even more of a nightmare that would land on the doorstep of the ICU. There's legislation right now in the states of Wisconsin and Florida that would prevent hospitals from denying treatments requested by patients, whether or not they're clinically acceptable treatments. And that is a complete response to hospitals saying no to certain things that people walk in the door with saying, I want to be treated with X. Right? It was in the book. I'll just say it, ivermectin, right? I want to be yep. treated with ivermectin for COVID-19. And there's no clinical proof that works. The hospital saying no. And we had a case here in Minnesota where in a hospital in the Twin Cities, the patient was basically dying. And they, the, the hospital's like, we need to take him off life support. And the wife said, no, he needs this treatment. She got permission to fly him to Texas where he died, unfortunately. And guess who they're suing? So in a hospital yeah. in Minnesota, right it wouldn't treatment. And so Wisconsin and Florida, among others, have that legislation pending right now, which seems crazy. How can you force a medical provider to do something that they know isn't going to work, that could get them sued and all the rest? It's happening, man. It is crazy, but it's the broad scale that you talk about the book that scares me the most. I've had personal examples and people I know who wanted a more natural treatment and natural therapy, even for things like cancer. And they refused those treatments and their doctors gave advice and they went home. Now you hear some people say that they were cured. There's lots of other people that died because of that, had the same result as the person who traveled to Texas, but it was usually an isolated example. It wasn't a movement or half the country feels this way or half the country. That's where I think it energizes this possibility across the nation and could have a serious impact. The podcast I did about this book when we were done recording, the person sitting in your seat said, I'm not sure we want to put this recording out because I'm afraid it's going to give people ideas. And I'm like, I don't think there. ideas that are already out there. We just haven't seen them yet. So we'll see. We'll see. And, you know, there was an interesting sister trend that I wanted to bring up here. We started asking using NRC Health's Market Insights tool, which, you know, largest consumer study in the country. And so we've got this opportunity, 300 markets. And we said, who do you trust starting in April, 2020? Who do you trust to handle the pandemic, to respond to COVID-19? We had a few different things that we asked within that question set, brand new. And the number one response back in the spring of 2020, which is frozen in all of our minds, was I trust individual experts and nationally known healthcare system leaders. So I saw Dr. Fauci on TV, and maybe I'd never really known Dr. Fauci before, and he seemed pretty popular. And I saw Redfield at CDC and Dr. Burks, and there was sort of this short list of people. Even I tuned in to the daily briefings of Governor Cuomo. And just saying that, we recognize that a lot of things have changed in two years. That's for sure. And what's interesting in the data, though, is so consumers trust those national leaders in that short list less. but. Yeah their trust has increased. And what used to be third place was their local hospital health system. So now there's more of a trust in local hospitals and health systems. And I share that data point with just a handful of people who said, we should do something with that. Is there an opportunity before the politics become so divisive? Is there an opportunity to say, you know what, just like COVID, we used to watch the national numbers, the Hopkins map. Now we're more considering our local area. What's our infection rate? What's our hospitalizations? What's our deaths within our county or a few counties? Can we too say, let's band together locally and say, why don't we follow the advice of each other within our community? If we need to divide up, we stay within our community and we follow the expert leadership of hopefully 
of those local hospitals and health systems. Is that a way to keep some unification or is that a pipe dream? I don't know if it's a pipe dream. I just think politics gets down to an individual level. It's, I mean, community isn't even small enough. Organization's not small enough. And you've got any organization you can pick, you're going to have political differences among the providers. There's a great podcast I listened to that actually studied this, and it showed doctors do not let their politics influence their treatment and diagnosis and approach. Primarily, they do not, right? So you think like, okay, well, it'll be fine. But how many organizations have we heard of, Ryan, in our field over the last two years that have had to deal with a rogue doctor, right? Enough that you just go, okay, well, who says, like, who's going to say ivermectin doesn't work? Or who's going to say you should take the vaccine three times? And those are very simple things. Those are very singular, simple things that we can't even agree on. So I don't know. Maybe I'm not as hopeful. I'll tell you what gives me hope. What gives me hope is the Senate unanimously outlawed daylight savings. And I'm just telling you, maybe that's the start, Ryan. Maybe things are turning around. We all agree on something. We got every last senator of this country to vote for the same thing. I have to tell you that in the book, I interviewed Kristen Weavers, CMO of UC Health, and we tried to think if a pandemic can't bring us together, what could? We thought about War with Russia, I bleep you not. We're like, nope, that wouldn't do it. Uh, it hasn't really, kind of, but not really. So I guess it's daylight savings. I guess that is the thing. And God bless that we're going to move on. And then they did something else unanimous right after that, like two in a row. So maybe this is the start. Maybe it's the start. It was our last hope, but we could, yeah, we could turn it around. Okay, on a less hopeful note, your final trend. The final piece is disparities healthcare disparities. A lot of people talking about this now, but you always wonder how much work is really being done because you talk about the haves and the half-nots, the health gap that is likely to expand, and you provide some good reasons on that. Tell me a little bit more about that, where you see healthcare disparities going, and also, if you could, like you did on the last one, if you have any hope that those won't careen completely out of control. It was totally incidental that the book kind of went here. Like we kind of positive and went down to the dark side of things. And it's true because, you know, the last thing we want is that kind of future. This is something that's not new. Disparities and equities have been with us for decades and decades, as long as there's been a health system in this country. COVID-19 made things worse, also shown a spotlight on that. And unfortunately, from everything we saw, it's not going to get better. The primary reason, and this is maybe we go back to the last conversation, hope lies in a moonshot. So there's a great quote in the book from a distant cousin of mine. I had the privilege of interviewing, like, I think he's a distant cousin. His name's Marco Bevelo from Italy. He lives in the Netherlands. He's a futurist. He's like a, a renowned lecturer. He's just a brilliant, brilliant guy. And in there, the quote that I cite is he says, he's studied health systems in countries in Europe, including the United States as well. And he says, healthcare is to a large extent a cultural notion. So basically, what that means is, we get the healthcare industry that we deserve as a country for good and for bad, right? We have a market-driven system. We have for-profit entities and even non-profit entities that make a lot of money or people point out their executives make a lot of money, whatever. That's the system we have. And so his point, I think, is it's going to take some kind of societal change 
I don't know whether there's hope in that, Ryan, because, you know, things that get thrown out are like Medicare for all. And there's certainly arguments for and against that. Socialized medicine, that kind of thing. It's going to take something of that scale, if not those exact solutions, to really solve this at a level that it needs to be solved, despite the hundreds, if not thousands of entities that are focused on trying to fix this or doing something to try to fix it. It's that ingrained, it's that widespread, and it's only going to get worse because the world, unfortunately, is getting worse in the ways we talk about in the book, like with climate change. If you look back to the last prediction, you think about the politics in this country, I don't know that we're in a hopeful place for that kind of moonshot, but that's kind of where we were left after our research and talking to the experts we talked to. Yeah, I like in the book you talk about, he might be your sixth cousin removed, but Marco Bevelo, so shout out to him. You know, you do mention something about it's going to be less about programs and actions and more about the mindset that we take. And if we say, listen, it's a value to provide everyone with some level of healthcare, whether it's Medicare for all or something else, but just the opportunity to look at everybody as deserving of healthcare. I think that that's so important. Everything that I'm hearing, not maybe not everything, but most of what I'm hearing is about actions and programs. So on this piece, you've heard it too, when someone says, you know, we created this program to tackle disparities. Are those good things? Are they going to get us part of the way to closing those gaps? Or are those actually, in some cases, distractions? Because like you say, there's deep-seated mindsets here that need to be altered or changed before disparities can truly be addressed. They're definitely not bad things. I mean, anything we can do. Definitely the suggestion is not either we take the big you know, swing for the fences or don't try at all. I think right. everything we can do that helps, if they give us the illusion that we're going to solve the problem that way, though, I think that becomes an issue. And also, you know, even the big picture kind of swing for the fence idea has a downside. There's a great insight from a guy we interviewed in the book. He said, look, when countries have tried to address inequities in healthcare through big societal changes, sometimes they drive those equities further. So he said, think about like Canada or think about European countries that have socialized medicine. They basically have a two-tiered system. They have the government-sponsored system, and then they still have a private system, which Marco talked about in the Netherlands. So for those who have the money, the haves, they can afford the better tier. And the people that can't afford it, at least they get healthcare, but they're getting a far inferior product theoretically, right? He says, so like this is supposed to drive equity, but in fact, the end result is a bifurcation of the delivery of care, which in itself goes against equity. So he's like, it's really difficult to figure this stuff out. It's not absolute, you know, Medicare for all is not necessarily a, a end all be all either. It needs to take maybe to your point, a different way to show up, but there's a large percentage of people in the country that don't think the society should support people in healthcare. That's pretty widespread. That's not like an anomaly. And that's part of who we are as a country. You're independent. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You do it on your own. You don't need help from your neighbor, whatever. That is partly what makes us an amazing country. So a lot of this is just a double-edged sword of like, can we be great at this, but then also do that? And I love the way that you so straightforward explain that. I had this asked of me, so we've got a book out, Patient No Longer, same name as the podcast. And I had someone recently ask me a question that I'm going to turn around and ask on you, fellow author and very established author. They asked me in handing them a copy, they said, 
when I'm finished reading this, what is the one emotion that you want me to feel? Because writing a book is hard work, and you've obviously gone to great lengths to put this together, Joe Public 2030. But when you hand a copy to someone or they download it and read it, what emotion do you want to leave them with? I have an answer, but it's qualified because from talking to people, from doing these presentations that I've done, I can predict the first emotion is not necessarily the emotion we want. So I want people, if they have this emotion, to get through it. And that first emotion, I think a lot of times is a little bit awestruck. And not necessarily in a positive way, right? So we presented to a C-suite of a hospital or health system, and there, you know, it was literally jaws dropped because the things we're talking about has such a potential profound impact on their organization, on this industry, on the communities they serve and the patients they serve. And they recognize that and they were just kind of stunned a little bit like, wow, this is, this is big stuff. It's not necessarily great stuff. So if you feel that, that's not a bad thing. That means it's had impact on you. But what I want folks to, to move away from, if it's one emotion, Ryan, it's to be energized. We say in the book, you know, we didn't intend for this to come out with some negative predictions. The cards are on the table. It is what it is. But the future is what you make it. But you don't like the idea of a dystopian disparity future for this country. If you don't like the idea of the potential politicalization of healthcare, if you don't like the idea of becoming a giant ICU on the Hill, what are you going to do about it? This is a decade that we're talking about. So as an individual, as an organization, as a team, whatever, how are you going to energize that group to do something, to change the future? Because it's not locked in stone. These are predictions. In some ways, we want to be right to show that we knew we were talking about. But boy, I would love to be wrong, particularly about the last two. Right. Because they're not great outcomes for this country. So I really think that it is about energizing. Use this to energize a conversation or action to change either a future you don't like or to enable the future that you do. Well, in painting this really vivid picture, scary picture, but vivid, you've given us some motivation to avoid it if it's not a future we want. And I like that a lot. Awestruck, then energized, I think is a, a two part process that. That might shake some people up and make some change. We're at the top. I thank you so much for your time on this. You've given the industry a lot to think about here. Everyone go out, get this copy of Joe Public 2030, share it, talk about it. I know you'll be doing retreats. You'll be doing additional work with Revive to support the book. So I just thank you so much for doing this important work. Thanks for having me back yet again, Ryan. I feel like I'm going to be banned for like three years. So hopefully I can come back. There's a lockout period in the contract, but I'll see what I can do because we'd love to have you back again. Yeah, great. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Thank you, Chris.